Gaston County has arrived at a crossroads. As Piedmont Lithium works with the state of North Carolina to receive a mining permit, the Gaston County Board of Commissioners is determining what they will do when Piedmont submits a petition for rezoning. Here's Gaston County Commissioner Chad Brown speaking to Alex, Max, and Grace in July 2023. As to this day, we talked about they still have yet to obtain a North Carolina license, and until that is done, they can't ask the county for their rezoning. The land is currently zoned R1 for agricultural and residential use, which carries the lightest regulations. Piedmont Lithium will request rezoning to I3 for industrial use, which carries the heaviest regulations. The permitting process is a crucial moment in the development of most mines. Once the state and federal permits are issued, the mine can typically commence. In the case of Gasted County and Piedmont Lithium, however, the land must be rezoned and conditional use must be granted before the mining permit can take effect. If the county commissioners approve the parcel rezoning and grant conditional use of the land, the road ahead will involve building the mine. If they strike down any part of the rezoning petition, Piedmont Lithium will not be able to mine these lands until, that is, they satisfy county zoning ordinances. We are standing at a crossroads. Will the mine become more than an idea? If it doesn't proceed, will the idea of the mine continue to affect those who live nearby? This is the final episode of Season 1, Mining for the Climate. I'm your host, Nate Utchin. So my understanding is they are going to get their mining permit eventually. This is Brian Dalton, city manager of Cherryville, a town of several thousand that borders part of the proposed mine. Whether it's today or whether it's six months from now, whenever, it will eventually happen. Once they get their mining permit, that's when they will go to Gaston County to probably file for a rezoning and a special use permit to do the mining. And then that's when Gaston County commissioners will eventually make the decision on the project. It's significant that the local government holds so much power in determining the fate of the mining project. Here's Brown again. We can't get this wrong. We have to ask all the questions. I know it seems like sometimes that people probably think we're beating them or brow beating them over some things, but we can't get this wrong. If the infrastructure for water is not in and the wells go dry, then they say, oh, we'll build it now. I will not vote for anything that doesn't have water already in place in case something does wrong. Brown gave us the impression that the Gaston County Board of Commissioners is unlikely to approve the petition for rezoning, at least for now. Regardless, Piedmont Lithium will almost certainly obtain a mining permit from the state of North Carolina. Dalton believes that Piedmont faces few impediments to obtaining this permit. As of right now, they're still trying to officially get their mining permit from the state. Now, with that being said, my understanding is the state of North Carolina has never denied a mining permit. So, and I think in statute it actually says once you meet certain questions and once you answer all the questions that they have, they shall issue your mining permits. 
The permitting process is more of a back-and-forth negotiation between the state of North Carolina, which requires that certain laws, regulations, and standards are met, and the mining company, in this case Piedmont Lithium. North Carolina wants to ensure that mines are built, and that they're built in accordance with state and federal laws. This introduces a central dilemma, however. Why isn't the permitting process based upon community input? If permitting offers the only meaningful opportunity to push back against a mine, why isn't community support a criteria for issuing a permit? Permitting raises larger questions about the collaboration between government and industry and about the ability of residents to grant consent. This isn't just an issue for Gasson County, it plays out across the entire country. Here's Ian Bigley, a regional organizer for the nonprofit Earthworks, speaking about mining permit applications. We'll meet them again in season two. So on the permitting side, not only is it assumed that this is the best use of the land, they're not having to defend that there should be a mine there, they're trying to defend this is the correct plan for a mine in satisfying the other environmental laws. Ian's referring here to public land in the Western United States. Their statement is representative of the broader approach to permitting taken in the U.S. Ian raises three important points. First, permits do not weigh competing uses and values of land. U.S. mine permitting policies generally prioritize mining above other activities and overlook competing land uses. Keeping a 100-acre forest intact for several decades may be more desirable than building a mine. However, permitting agencies don't typically see it this way. Second, the permitting process does not require that mining companies defend the need for their proposed mine. It's already assumed that mining is the right way forward. And third, because permitting does not require companies to defend their mines, application approval hinges not on whether communities accept or reject a mine, but rather on whether a mine can satisfy environmental regulations. As Ian explains, Community acceptance is not a criteria of permitting in either federal or state level permitting regimes. By design, permitting proceeds without community consent. In the case of the proposed lithium mine in Gaston County, Local government has more power to stop the mine or substantially alter its course. That's because they will determine whether the mine meets local zoning ordinances. Their decision will determine which path the mine and the region will follow. The energy transition presents many forking paths. Gaston County's case could set the region and the country on a different path. Let's imagine for a moment that the mine is built. This is one path. Here's Aaron Sanders, Senior Vice President of Corporate Communications and Investor Relations at Piedmont Lithium. This spodumene belt is unique as far as the size and the infrastructure around it. There are some very remote places where lithium can be found in a commercially viable resource and that's fly in fly out that's really tough you don't have the infrastructure that's one of the really important points about this project in the carolina tin spodumene belt where we can employ people who can go home every night 
The Carolina Tin Spodumene Deposit is nearly 40 miles long by approximately one-half to one mile wide. This narrow seam of spodumene rock extends across the border of North and South Carolina. Although it's not clear whether lithium can be mined from all parts of the deposit, Piedmont Lithium has been buying land along it. The company believes that this deposit will play an important role in the emerging battery belt, a regional manufacturing hub for the production of electric vehicles. Here's Aaron again. I'm sure you've heard about the battery belt. Well, it is stretching from up in Michigan, Ohio, and coming down here through the Carolinas and Georgia. All these operations are either extracting minerals, battery development, or car EV development, or other electrification. North Carolina has a company that does vans and buses, and then one that is developing electric boats. This is the vision for the 21st century battery belt. Mines proliferate across the region, providing the lithium needed to produce lithium-ion batteries. Car manufacturing hubs assemble batteries and fuse them into their latest EV models. In this vision of the future, lithium mined from the tin spodumene deposit will power the nation's newest fleet of electric vehicles. Piedmont Lithium's proposed mine in Gaston County is expected to meet 4% of the total domestic lithium demand by 2030, though this could decline if demand increases or more mines open up. What would it look like, however, if the mine isn't built? We could imagine that the mine isn't constructed, that people like Locke, Lisa, and Rebecca would be able to continue their lives, albeit with the fear that another mining company might try to use different tactics. Locke opens his park, Lisa grows her cattle operation, and Rebecca establishes her horse ranch and sanctuary. From the perspective of most outsiders, however, it's far easier and more attractive to imagine a future that looks like the battery belt. This right here is the problem. This is the danger of the single path. We live in a mining intensive society, one where the instruments we depend upon for our everyday existence, from cars to phones to soda cans, are built using materials that come from deep within the earth. Ours is a society in which the very idea of the future is tethered to unlimited extraction and growth. Without intensive mining, the future becomes difficult for many to envision. Veering from the dominant path would be catastrophic, we are told. Society would collapse. We would fall to the devastation of the climate crisis. Progress and civilization would end. The single path laid out by mining makes it challenging to imagine, let alone develop and follow, alternate paths. If we want a future where Locke, Lisa, Rebecca, and countless others have the ability to lead the lives they envision for themselves, we need to build and travel different paths. This requires thinking outside or against the futures already envisioned for us. 
Many solutions have already been proposed to put us on less mining-intensive paths. A January 2023 report from the Climate and Community Project found that the United States could reduce lithium demand and thus the need to open more mines while still working toward decarbonization. The report offered three recommendations. First, to reduce the car dependence of the transportation system. Second, to decrease the size of electric vehicle batteries, which have tripled since the first EV came on the market. And third, to maximize lithium recycling. Here's Thea Riofrancos, Associate Professor of Political Science at Providence College and the lead author of the report. Though we are seeing more and more EVs bought and sold in the United States, we're still at the early stages of decarbonizing our transportation sector. That means that the total volume of extraction of lithium alongside other transition minerals is not a given. And there are still critical political and social and economic choices to be made about how we decarbonize with huge implications for how much lithium will be demanded, as well as for the contours of those transportation environments at the local level. Experts speak of ensuring consent, not simply consultation, as another path. As Wyatt Julien, a lawyer for Earth Rights International, explains, the current mine permitting and approval process does not give communities the opportunity to say no, to refuse a mine. I believe that any consultation process that doesn't have the duty to obtain consent as part of it is almost inherently coercive. When you think about two sides negotiating and one side does not have the ability to walk away, and say no, then it tends to be coercive because the options there are to engage in a process that you don't feel guarantees your rights and thereby through your participation legitimize the project. I think structurally, that's a huge issue. You need the ability to say no, to have the consent be authentic. Experts point to circular economies as yet another path. Here's Ian with Earthworks again. Earthworks is really supportive of what's called a circular economy. There's circular economies all around us. It's a little cheesy, but like the best example is nature. There is no trash can in nature. Anything that's waste gets reused. That's a really basic principle of sustainability. So what we want to see is making sure that we are prioritizing recycling and reuse before new mining. And unfortunately, you make more money with new mining than recycling currently. A big part of that is battery design. This is an opportunity to improve. This is an opportunity to vision a future with less oppression. And it's an opportunity to look for solutions that are truly sustainable, like mass transit, recycling, and changing battery design. The energy transition presents us with an array of opportunities, a set of forking paths. The question is, which ones do we follow? And where do they take us? Mining for the Climate is a co-creation of Nate Ocean and Juan Manuel Rubio and is a production of Blue Lab at Princeton University. For their support and expertise, we thank, at Princeton, the High Meadows Environmental Institute, the Humanities Council, and the Office of the Dean of Research, as well as Covenda Media. This episode of Mining for the Climate was written and produced by Nate Ocean. Sound design was by Juan Manuel Rubio. Our research and production team includes Max Whitman, Alex Norbrook, Grace Wang, 
Nate Ogen, and Juan Manuel Rubio. Music for this episode was by Purple Planet. Find it at purple-planet.com. Additional music tracks are from Shake That Little Foot and Cryo Meadows. This episode of Mining for the Climate was produced by me, Nate Achen, and edited by me, Juan Manuel Rubio, Alex Norbrook, Max Widman, and Grace Wayne. We would like to express our gratitude to the following people for their generosity and kindness. Amir Adaryani, H.L. Bean, Locke Bell, Ian Bigley, Rebecca Buck, Chad Brown, Brian Dalton, Wyatt Julien, Larry Neal, Monique Parker, Adam Parr, Thea Rio Francos, Aaron Sanders, Lisa Strap, Emily Winter, and Tom. At Blue Lab, we especially thank the lab's director, Allison Carruth, along with Baron Bixler, Maggie Poos, Jamie Collins, Jessica Ng, and Mario Soriano. At the High Meadows Environmental Institute, we thank Emily Amitage, Stacy Christian, Kathy Hackett, Nathan Jesse, Ryan Juskis, Zach Cato, Heidi Mihalik, and Laura Matecha. And at the Efren Center for the Study of America, we give special thanks to Nikwisha Tolliver.